This is Functional and Fabulous, the omni-channel podcast, where we unbox tales of online retail and digital transformation. Welcome to the Functional and Fabulous podcast. My name is Jared Kyohan, and I'm Functional. My name's Gordon Newman, and I'm Fabulous. Let me tell you a little bit about this podcast. Gordon and I have been working in retail e-commerce for the best part of our careers. It's a domain we adore, not least because it demands both functional excellence and fabulous retail theatre. During this podcast, we will be speaking with experts in the many and diverse areas that Omnichannel Commerce covers to unbox for you, our listener, the global standards for customer experience, operational excellence and digital wow, so you can understand how they are achieved behind the scenes. Gordon, will you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, what do I do? I work with retailers across a number of different verticals, everything from electronics to jewellery to department stores and fashion. And usually they call me and go, um, online isn't working. And how do we make this work? And I go, okay, well, let's have a look at that. Um, I focus on the creative components, the story of the product, the story of the retailer, and how we bring that to life online through building experiences that really represent what that retailer stands for. I think that makes me fabulous. But what makes you functional, Jer? Well, with a background in natural language processing and web application development, I come to retail e-commerce with a pragmatic attitude rooted in technical understanding. I've been running the Studio 49 e-commerce agency since 2006, where we've immersed ourselves in all things digital retail. I love to work on systems integration, business process automation, and the collection, communication, and understanding of business data. So I guess that's why I'm bringing the functional. Now, with introductions out of the way, let's dive straight into this episode. In this episode... Gordon gets expressive. I'm going to think of the hand action. Our guest forgets who he is. Who the f*** is he? <laughs> Grown men struggle to open a cardboard box. Well packaged. It's really well packaged. So much so I can't get mine open. And Jer gets poetic. As the mists and the, 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 the fog uh, dissipates, we still have the North Star and it's still in the same place that it always was. And today we're joined by our guest, Dean McElwee. Dean is Director of Global E-Commerce Collaboration at Stanley Black & Decker. He works with retailers the world over to place and position the entire product catalogue of the full suite of brands that Stanley Black & Decker operate on those retailers' e-commerce stores. Stanley Black & Decker is an enormous business doing in the region of $20 billion per annum and is ranked in the Fortune 500. And Dean is a globally recognised e-commerce and sales leader with over 17 years experience in retail consulting and sales leadership for blue chip multinational organizations. His analytical approach, leadership and business acumen enable him to implement innovative growth strategies that not only drive performance, but also drive higher engagement and profit. His experience spans both Europe and Africa across FMCG retail consulting with a focus on commercial strategy. More informally, he declares his superpowers to be commercial strategy, data and analytics. Welcome, Dean. It's wonderful to have you here today. Thank you. Great to be here. As ever, we'll start the ball rolling with a little unboxing. Um, Today, we have a product by a local coffee roaster here in Cork called Velo Coffee. Um, They've kindly sent us some samples of their wares. So we're going to have a look. In these lovely big white boxes. Yes. So we're going to wrestle with the tape and... I'm going to go for a pull. <laughs> this is quite exciting. 
well packaged. It's really well packaged. So much so I can't get mine open. I got it done. So Velo Coffee, it's a really interesting uh, little business. Started out in a, a Cork City cafe back in 2016. And obviously, I mean, they're way better at naming things than I am. So they've kind of gone with this Velo team. They have uh, BMX coffee, which actually I'm very familiar with, and it's my favourite. They have tandem coffee and other kind of cargo bikes and, and, and things like that. In the box, we have a beautiful, fabulous tote. We have three lovely bags of coffee, beautifully packaged. And I have a coffee pot. I like the unboxing. I like the inside of the box with the logo. That looks great. I love the colours. I think these are fabulous. It's nice to wake up in the morning and... You know, rip open a cof- uh, a bag of this stuff. Absolutely. And great to experience it. If you turn it around, there, there's a little patch where you can smell, mm-hmm. which is really, really good. I, I actually spoke with uh, Rob Horgan years ago when he originally was starting this business, and he had such a challenge to find a p- packaging that was easy to send, that would get through a letterbox. So I think he's pretty much achieved that uh, incredibly well. He's told me that their retention rate is up around 60%. Which is... That's because it's obviously good coffee, Jay. Obviously good coffee. Branding's really consistent on everything. Branding oh. across the inside of the box is great. Uh, ties in nicely with the coffee bags. I think mm. this is definitely fabulous. Look at this. I love this. I have in my hand a uh, coffee pot, which is super. It looks really cool. Wow. You have spoiled. I think Dean and I only got mugs. I got the same as Jay. <laughs> I got a mug. Yay, I got a mug. I'm the special one, obviously. (laughs) We're just functional. We're just going to make the coffee. We have a a lovely little message here from uh, the guys in Velo. Uh, It has made our day to see that you placed an order for some Velo coffee. Lovely little handwritten message. Uh, I really, really like this. Some of the coffee is brilliant. So creamy and balanced coffee with flavours of milk, chocolate, almond, shortbread and orange. I'm salivating just at the thought of it. (laughs) Super. So that's Velo. Lovely little bit of unboxing. This episode of Functional and Fabulous is brought to you with pride by Studio 49, retail e-commerce experts, omni-channel growth consultants, and cut-through performance marketing specialists. Studio 49, where your digital retail success is built. Welcome, Dean. We're delighted to have you. Hiya, Dean. We're really keen to hear a little bit more about about your role at Black & Decker. Yeah, so my role encompasses working with with our operating regions, so the US, Latin America, um, Asia, and EMEA. And I work with them to drive their strategy and implement their strategy from an e-commerce perspective. And then I work across the regions on tech tools and what supports those tech and tools to deliver our e-commerce vision. You've been involved in uh, e-commerce at a senior level for many years Mm. now. Um, What do you see as the typical challenges in a business as it prepares for you know, e-commerce, omni-channel and uh, digital transformation. Yeah, I, I think as businesses trans- transform and go more e-commerce and get deeper e-commerce penetration, there are a couple of things that really start appearing as as the business grows. And that's what I often refer to as the e-commerce amplification effect, where e-commerce amplifies things that the business needs to get right and, and improve and evolve with. So one of the biggest ones that I often see is data and data readiness and availability. So do you have the right data and can you syndicate that out and and provide it in the right manner throughout your business? Um, In a business like ours, for example, you have 400,000 SKUs and you've got to keep 150 to 200 fields of data Mm. across those 400 SKUs and this starts to become a rather large data management challenge. I can't even begin to do the maths on that, Dean. 
<laughs> I don't. Yeah. It, it's a lot of data fields to manage. I, I, I think this is why we should do maths until, until <laughs> leaving set, because I can't do it either. <laughs> but with a challenge like that for for a retailer, and even a retailer that hasn't got 400,000 SKUs, huge challenge in managing accuracy. And, and, and I think one of the things that e-commerce does is it really exposes any kind of gaps that exist in data processes in mm. data flows in data accuracy but when those gaps are exposed what does that kind of mean like what are the impacts for the customer what are the impacts for the retailer well i think you know i always bring it back down to the three deadly sins of digital as i call them um, and it's digital and e-commerce it, it goes across both and that's really replication multiplication and versioning in that when when you look at this from from the value chain of a supplier of goods through to a retailer of goods. If I provide you with incorrect data and then you publish that data out to your customers, there's potential implication for that. So, so I've seen various instances where you may have a food producer produce mm. the food, send it through to a supermarket. Um, they don't know whether that data is accurate. Mm. And then it goes onto the retailer's website. And then the consumer, may be the it may be the first time that they actually see that product in their hands is when they when it's bought and it's already delivered. So if you think somebody who perhaps has an allergen to a type of cream, they buy it online, they get it home, they don't look at the box, they don't look at the ingredients, but they've looked at the website to check that it's got the right yep. um, things and allergens on, and then yep. they put it on, and then there's a reaction. The first thing they notice is a rash. Yeah, <laughs> and you don't want a nasty rash. Absolutely, <laughs> and you don't want a nasty rash. But but that, that's that's mm. the types of things that can happen with with um, poor data management. So it's it's really looking right through the value chain and saying where does this information start? Where does it originate? What are the rules around how it's stored? And then how does that progress down the value chain? Because versioning version control which is the third deadly sin there is is absolutely key you can change one ingredient in a food product you don't have to change the whole pack but you you, you change one ingredient and suddenly there's an allergen there that nobody knew about i love the the term um, the amplification of e-commerce um because i think e-commerce um, and 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 the, the the very nature of technology and the digital transformation element throws a stark uh, spotlight mm. on all of the processes, the data in the business, and so on. And all of a sudden, there's no place to hide. Um, I suppose one of the things we we see a lot in our business is uh, as soon as we put the letter E before the word commerce, um, all of a sudden people in the business um, who are very very experienced retailers and quite senior, you know, they 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 start to have difficulty imagining how they can understand digital and do you mm. see that kind of um problem as well we we see it often and mm. one, of, one of the things i often see is what i call the digital iq of the senior leaders um is often quite low mainly because they didn't grow up around mm. these things and then they're not they're not used to them um and so it can be a bit frightening um to to certain leaders um but it's really about working out how that is very similar to the other parts of the business and saying, you know, is is what we're seeing on the e-commerce side different? Um, yes, it's different. It's a different execution. It's a different cu customer experience. Mm. But you're still focused on the same people. So you're still focused on that same shopper who physically walks into your store. You're just trying to encourage them to do it in a different way online. Mm -hmm. And exactly like a retailer may focus on delivering the best possible experience in a store, they, they need to be focusing on 
delivering the best possible experience online. And that can't look exactly like it does in the store. Of course. It's got to look different um, yeah. to attract that shopper. Like but, e- e-commerce is just an expression of, of, of what the retailer is doing. The same gut instincts, the same buying uh, you know, approaches and things like that still apply. So. Yeah, absolutely. I, I always think retailers have this, they almost have this reflex action. They know what to do when it's in a store mm. and they know that and some of the processes they might not be documented, but they're certainly embedded within the business. Mm. And one of the things I think that happens is is e-commerce requires you to now think about how are you going to take that reflex action and turn that into a process that is effectively gonna be it's gonna be executed by a machine. Yeah. But but you've talked about it before, Gordon, the retailer reflexes. This kind of um, gut instinct. Uh, sometimes people are doing things in a structured way. They don't even realize they're doing it. They're used to it. That's their instinct. But it, it, in the instance that, that, that Dean's just called out there, the digital IQ of, of a senior leadership team, um, if they're not familiar with it and they're deeply uncomfortable, how do you go about changing that? So you're upskilling the, mm. the leadership within a business. Mm. So I, I think there's, there's one of the things that we do, which is, is quite actually a simple thing to do. Um, is we do digital store tours. So we, we actually take people physically into store, if you can, show them what you, what you look for in a physical store, where's mm. the display, how much shelf space is yep. available, those types of things, but then take them through the same process online. What are you looking for when you shop online? Yeah. Um, through our eyes as opposed to their eyes, because that'll open up new things. You'll start to see that there's a, a delivery store if it's a pick from store model. So you've got to choose your pick from store. You've got to do the search bar and take them through examples of how search works mm. and then start asking them the questions that they would be asking anyway. Where's my best performing SKU? Yeah, every, every, every retailer, every manufacturer knows the best performing SKU. Where is it on a web page? Is it buried deep on page six or seven? Or is it on page one? Where do they want it to be? Everybody's going to say, I want it at eye level at the front in front of the shopper. And so doing things like a digital store tour helps them integrate and just bridge that gap from the sort of bricks and mortar world into the digital world. And then we can start to talk about, well, are there additional opportunities to expose my brand on a retailer's website? And then then the conversation starts moving towards, well, how do I get the content ready for that? Mm. How do I make sure I have all the content and all the data for that. If a retailer wants to do a blog post, can I provide that to them? Mm. Can I provide ideas and inspiration to help them sell their products and their services as well as my brands? It's such a simple thing, the the idea of a, a store tour and applying mm. the same kind of logic that, that um, you know, when you, when you walk into a store, I know many retailers, uh, they can immediately see whether the store has been merchandised correctly. Yeah. Um, they know immediately how... To, to operate in terms of the wayfinding within the store and things like that. And just to kind of transfer that um, knowledge and understanding over mm. to digital. I think some of this actually comes down to, to base data, doesn't it? Yeah. Because mm. if you think about default sort options on a website um, and compare that to, say, the visual standards that you would see on a phys- mm. in a physical store, um, the visual standards tend to be different because the default sort options are always best selling in price. Yeah. But customers aren't necessarily buying on best selling or price. And yeah. unless you're going to be manually curating every web page, you can't do that physically. And in your instance, with 
400,000 SKUs, you can't do that. Yeah. So the data has to be in really good shape so that you can use it. Do you guys like advise retailers on that? Yeah, I, I think this is one of the key things, particularly when you measure omnichannel retailers. So we measure omnichannel retailers. And one of the key data points that I always look for is what is their online market share of our brand? Mm -hmm. And then what is our offline market share? And what I'll often see is that there is a difference between those two. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, so in, in some cases, it might be that the online market share is quite a bit lower. And that's because how you activate in-store and how you activate online are different. They're different levers to pull. And it goes also, once again, to the merchandising. I can control and I can influence the merchandising in a bricks and mortar world to say there's, there's the planogram, there's how it should be laid out. Um, in a digital world, it may be different and there are different levers that need to be pulled. So, you know, how do we work with retailers to understand which are our most important products that they make the best margin on and then work out how we can display them, either, either through advertising that we put behind it or working on the organic search ranking as such with them. Because I find it very interesting, and I'm always curious about, um, and, and, and it indicates potential when you have um, different market shares or different shares of sales um, by category of product and so on, mm. online and in-store, and you know, the mix is different, and yes. why is that? Uh, do you ever look at it from an assortment point of view? Like, uh, is the assortment offered online different to what's offered in-store, and therefore the market share is affected? So, so typically, um, that would often be the same. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in some cases, I have seen that where an omni-channel retailer replicates the catalog online, um, the assumption from, for a lot of people is that it's going to be the same catalog. Um, but it's one of the things that, you know, we talk about e-commerce being a, a full team sport. Um, you actually have to get your, your, your teams involved to go and look, is that actually physically in store and is it online? Because managing those catalogs and syncing those catalogs online is quite hard for, for many retailers. Mm. Um, and it all, once again, comes down to master data. Do you, do you have the right master data to replicate exactly what you see in your physical store, in your online store? Um, especially when you have a pick from store model and, and, and the shopper can pick from wherever yeah. they want to pick up the stock from. I think there's an interesting point you touched on, Gordon, there, um, where I think sometimes, you know, online merchants are led by the tech a bit and it becomes the dog, you know, the tail wagging the dog. So rather than um, dictating how you want your sort to work and, and merchandising your product listing pages and so on, you're allowing the default options in your e-commerce platform mm. to dictate that. So only the, the most recently added product ends up on the top of the page and, and you have those sorts of... And that might not be the right place for it. And mm -hmm. that's, that, that's why one of the things, and certainly as we've worked with different retailers, is actually understanding the buying cycle. Why have the buyers, or in, in your case maybe, Dean, why are things being built in the way that they're being built? So yeah. why, why are things being manufactured? How have they been designed? Mm -hmm. What's the story that sits behind them? And sometimes that just doesn't get surfaced if those communication yeah. flows aren't there. Absolutely. And, and things like seasonality. You know, we've got an outdoor business, which is lawn mowers and string trimmers, and that's a highly seasonal business. Um, and also snow blows in certain parts of the world. So making sure things like the sort order and when those things get prominent merchandising on a site means working with the retailer to do that. And that takes a lot more data. Um, we make extensive use of Google Trends APIs mm. to see exactly when people are, are looking for things like lawn mowers or cutting the lawn or, 
for searching for that so that we can help inform retailers of of what the trends are and therefore what they should be merchandising against. Exactly. And it's important to have the, the tooling in place so that you can uh, yeah. surface that kind of thing. You need the data to know which ones are the lawnmowers and you need the tooling to surface to the top. Yeah. And you need the story or the yeah. trend so that you can use that tooling because yeah. the, the tooling is just that. It's a tool to help you make the change. And I, I think if you just say, say you're just relying on AI, mm. um, AI sometimes can't have that predictive knowledge mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it doesn't have visibility of the inputs. Yeah. And how do you find, you know, talking about AI, um, the, the whole kind of um, personalization, I suppose, the, the focus on personalization and creating these unique experiences for customers and so on. Um, it's a, a topic uh, between Gordon and I, you know, of, of controversy. Um, do you see the, the benefits? Is, is, are we there yet? I, th I think we see the benefits. I think we have more passage to go. I, I think if, if the three of us all sat and opened a, a, a retailer's website, we'd probably get all the same experience. So is that really as personalized as, as we'd be talking about? So I think there's, there's an opportunity for retailers to up the ante in terms of the personalization that they offer. And the same for, the same for brand manufacturers. I think we all talk about personalization. It may surface in the form of emails and email personal, personalization mm. and customer journeys. And, and I think the industry's done a great job of that. Um, I think less so in terms of the customer experience we experience in websites. I think we all pretty much get the same experience. Pretty much. I think, yeah. I, I think it, it, it seldom extends beyond, like we might get a different set of product recommendations based on what we browse. Yeah. We're not necessarily going to be surfaced different content in terms of, the stories that we're being told or in terms of the wayfinding that might suit me mm -hmm. differently to what might suit Dean or, or what might suit you, Jair. But I, th I think that's quite difficult to then execute at any level of scale. Yeah. And for a lot of retailers who are busy, plugging in recommendations is a nice, easy tool and they take the box on personalization. Yeah. It's an interesting thing. Um, you know, we, we, we see now the democratization of retail tech. So uh, software and capability that used to cost hundreds of thousands is now available on subscription, sometimes uh, mm. quite cheaply. How do brands and retailers now differentiate when, you know, it, what, is, what is now a fairly level playing field? How do you get the opportunity to differentiate yourself, um, would you think? Well, I, I think this is, this is one of the things that I talk about in terms of what e-commerce amplifies. It's, it's radical transparency. Mm. Um, I, as a consumer, can visit five or six different retailers, um, and I can see what they offer in, in, the, in, the, in the span of about 15 minutes. Um, and these, these retailers can look at their competitors and see exactly what they're doing too. Um, so how do you differentiate that, not just from a digital point of view, but a complete experience point of view. So a complete omni-channel. We, we, we look at that and we, we go and say, how can I help you experience it and drive it online? So um, can I do live shopping, for example? We recently launched live shopping on our B2B sites for our, for our distributors in India to allow them to be able to ask questions mm. and experience our brands in a totally different way because they physically can't get in to see the, see the products and we can't go to all 1,200 distributors in a country like India to expose, expose them to, to, to the brands that we offer. So I think, you know, particularly with retailers, it's how do you dis distinguish 
and make yourself quite distinctive in the market from from everybody else by looking at all parts of your experience. It's not just the online experience, it's the offline experience, it's the service, it's the people behind the counter, it's the experience um, even on buy online and pick up in, in store. You know, I, I've done click and collect for a couple of times here and when I first arrived in this country, um, I, I'd go and do click and collect in the lashing rain outside Tesco and I'd sit there and I'd go, this is this this is not great. This is just really not a great experience. Mm-hmm. You know, can't can't you cover it or can't you put it in a corner of the store that makes it better for me as an online shopper to experience your brand? And I'm both an online and offline shopper. But I think that's where 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 retailers can look at those types of experiences and go and say, how do we make this complete experience distinctive and meaningful for the shopper? Mm-hmm. Isn't that the retailer's job? So. A retailer Ooh. is taking great master data and they've got a great product feed from there, in theory, from all of their suppliers in a perfect world. Everybody's feeding them the standard imagery. Everybody's feeding them the product descriptions. All Ooh. of the specifications are correct, but everybody's getting the same. And I think that's the retailer's job then yeah. to differentiate above that. And as you say, it's the service wrapper. It's things like live shopping. It's that spin that the retail put, the retailer puts on it. Just mm. as one retail store will feel different to another retail store selling the same product, and I, I think there's there's so much that you can do with the the base data, but then the retailer has to has to then work with that. One hundred percent. We 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 kind of have a a situation. It feels. Um, to me, that we have a situation where um, we've pl- plateaued a bit, where the democratization of the retail tech has allowed a lot of retailers and uh, merchants to get up to the same level. And now they're trying to figure out how to unlock the next level, how to mm. un- unlock the potential that's in the business. And what it, re- it, what it is really is now to forget about the digital part and let that fade away a small bit and get back to the retailing. And we've talked in the past, just, you know, stitching the experiences together identifying the experiences on the journey just mm. like you've spoken about Dean what happens after I after I put through my collection order what comes next mm. how do we stitch that together so that it's the yeah. best it can be for the customer I think we've often got the order wrong so I think you know I often say say to teams when we're looking at evaluating new new ways of going to market look at it from a consumer or customer yeah. focused angle then business led so what commercial decisions are you making and then how does technology enable that and deliver on that. Don't get it the other way around and go, yeah. here's a great piece of tech, I want to implement it. <laughs> but isn't isn't that always <laughs> yeah. the way? You see yes. a shiny yeah. new piece of tech and you think, I would love to do that. And the customer has no value for it whatsoever. Yeah. And the consumer may not even care. So yeah. I think it's it's really go, go back to consumer or customer focus, depending on what your business looks like. And then what are the business-led decisions? So as a retailer, do I want to make more money? Yes, I want, want to. So how do I... And do I want my, my supplier support? Yes, I do. So can I merchandise products that are profitable for me and profitable for the supplier? I mean, that would be fantastic if you could digitally merchandise that and, and also physically merchandise that. And, and, then, and most exciting for the customer. <laughs> yeah. And, and then get the tech to be able to do that for you um, rather than looking at the tech and go, yeah, that looks fantastic. I'm going to implement it and, and nobody quite knows how to work. And, and I think often what you then see is not enough utilization of the tech and the ROI 
isn't really there because you're focused on the wrong person. You, yeah. you, you know, you've got to go back and focus on, on the consumer and the shopper. You see a kind of a, a behavior where the, the tech mm. is implemented and then you walk away kind of, you know, rubbing your hands, whistling, job is done. Um, yeah. But it's actually not. It's the turn it on its, mm. I think we're saying here, turn it on its head. What would you like to create for the customer? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then what tech can help you do that rather than here's some great tech. And I think it kind of also leads into other areas like like loyalty programs, mm. um, you know, um, and you know, you've spoken a bit in the past about the loyalty programs and your experience with them. Mm. Do you want to uh, elaborate yeah. on that? So I think years ago I worked for for Mastercard, and one one of the things that we learned there, we ran the, the biggest loyalty program in Africa, and one of the things that that I always learned there and, and try to focus on was reward the behavior you want rather than the behavior you have. Um, And specifically for retailers, you look at loyalty programs and you look at the way we even merchandise online or we get a market online, and we've got your past behavior, so we're going to sell you exactly the same thing again. Yeah, or exactly the same type of thing. Yeah, that you're going to buy anyway. But is that what you're... That you're (laughs) going to buy anyway. We're Mm -hmm. not trying to make you pay more for something. Not trying to make you do it more often. Um, Or not trying to get you to buy more of it. And so really, when you look at that, um, it's, it's rewarding the behavior you want rather than the behavior you have. Yep. It's something my wife does with me very successfully. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, and uh, leave it, leaving that aside, uh, tell us a little bit about the fingertips of desire, actually. Um, just popped to my mind. I yeah. know this is my favorite Deanism. Is it? Yeah. Yes. So, well, just to give a little bit of background, I suppose you know um, we've spoken about this in the past. The um, the whole idea of of how marketing has changed um, yeah. and the transformation of marketing from you know uh, I suppose from what it was into marketing the now or you know what is the 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 right thing at the right moment because everything is available now so mm. that's the fingertips of desire yes so so i think when we look at digital specifically um what one of the one of the things that has transformed in the last 20 years is how we've engaged with marketing and with shopping quite frankly but both have been um, dramatically transformed you know if you went back 20 years you you went to see billboards you drove past billboards you went and you opened magazines yep. and page through them until the, the, the shopkeeper um, decided to kick you out or tell you to buy it. And you heard radio slots specifically at certain times. Yeah, this was an era before social media sort of started climbing from about 2010 onwards. So it was really marketing was there. It wasn't mm. here and in your face. Yep. I think we, you know, we, we've ended up where the, you can open a news website. You can go independent.ie and you'll see an advert on the side. You'll go on to Facebook, you'll see an advert, you'll see advertising all through. So it's 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 really quite close to you. And mm-hmm. it's always on all the time. And and I think one one of the one of the things that um I sort of uh, often see is that there's an analogy that um when I was at, spent some time at Coca-Cola working for Coca-Cola, they had the strategy which was to be within the arm's reach of desire. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for consumers and shoppers nowadays, um, everything is within a fingertips reach of desire. You can press a button, you can open up an entire shop, yeah, it's, it, you can see an entire catalog of what they have, and you can see that in five minutes. You can't walk into a store and see what you can see online. 
So the ability to open up if equivalent of entire shopping centers in a couple of hours just browsing online is is really, really easy for consumers and shoppers. And so I think the challenge for retailers is when consumers and shoppers are doing that, how do they stand out? Um, how do they catch my attention when everything is really, really at the fingertip of desire? I can I can get whatever I want. I can order mm. whatever I want. And I can find whatever I want. Yeah. How to how to cut through, but also how yeah. to engage and get involvement. Um, because, like you said, it's it's right here, right now. But also, the next thing and the distraction and everything else is also right here, right now. Absolutely, and get me coming back. How do you continually re-engage me uh, to keep me coming back? Because I've probably got about ten or twelve dis, um, subscriptions to various online stores, pummeling with me with emails. Um, trying to trying to re-engage me. So how do you do that when everything is the fingertip of desire? And that's why I think retailers need to evolve um, and transform to to get that cut through. And Absolutely. isn't this why the complete experience needs to be fabulous? Yes, <laughs> Gordon, it is. <laughs> See, that's thrown a spanner in the works, hasn't it? One hundred percent. So uh, I I think I think it's fascinating. Um, uh, what what we've talked about today, I I, lo- I love the deanisms. I love you know the e-commerce amplification, radical transparency, the three dean sins, is it? The, the three deadly, deadly sins. sins of digital replication, multiplication, Dean's deadly and sins of digital. Yeah, these, these are fantastic. Yeah. What do you think in twenty twenty three? What are we What are we looking for this 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 year? I think we're looking for a return to basics. I think there's mm, been. I like there's been massive growth fueled online and and to a large extent offline yep. across a number of businesses. And I think um, 2023 is the opportunity to pause, reevaluate what you're doing. Take you know the the the, the accelerator has been pushed really hard just to just to keep up for the last 100%. two years. So how do we reevaluate the experiences? Focus on things like profitability. Focus on things like the experience. Um, I see a lot of that. Um, I also see a return to really just trying to manage businesses correctly from an assortment point of view, from mm-hmm. a strategy point of view. What are the decisions you're making around assortment, about strategy, about how you engage with your consumers and customers? Foundations and fundamentals. Yeah, yeah it's like I, I really feel like in my own business, uh, a year of consolidation because yeah. we've had such tumult for the last uh, three, four years. Yeah operating at Black Friday levels nearly every day for two or three years now. So um, time to kind of get the house back in order, set out the basics. Um, I 100% agree with that. And with your permission, Dean, I would love to co-opt all, all. of your Deanisms <laughs> because I think they, I, I think they do, they do a great job in explaining some of, some of the need to, yeah. to actually reset and focus on those, on mm. those fundamentals and the reasons why. It's how do you get that base functionality right? You know, I think we, we've strayed quite a bit towards really doing great transformations and putting mm. in new tech and putting in things like that. But have you got the functionality right in the businesses to be able to deliver that at scale and personalized? I think, you know, we've tried yeah. to do it at scale, but have we, have we evolved it to be at scale and personalized? Exactly. It's a consolidation mm. of a platform for growth and scale. While remaining fabulous, naturally, Gordon, because... Uh, Absolutely, it has to be done. But mm-hmm. you can only focus on that if you have everything else working mm-hmm. as it should. 
And as a final note, Dean, what are we going to see at uh, Stanley Blackendecker? What kind of areas, if you can talk to that a little yeah. bit, are you guys going to be focusing on? I, I think we're focusing very much on doing the same. So I think we're, we're, we're mm-hmm. focusing on, on consolidating um, the gains we've made over the last couple of years. I think we're focusing on how can we drive more penetration of our products into different market segments. Um, so certainly for us, more expansion onto places like marketplaces um, for future growth. And then looking at different business models, I think um, you know we see a, a focus very much on B2B and how do we enable the B2B experience of how we trade with our customers using e-commerce being, being a, a, a big uh, opportunity for area for us in the next two to That's three years. That's really interesting. How do you see the whole kind of shift, the D2C shift over to B2B and so on? coming down the tracks the expectation from from our customers is very much to have a d2c experience Mm. so i think there's a convergence between what is typically deemed to be a d2c experience and the b2b experience um so but it's d2c plus so how can i get live chat for example um you know we're a large large producer of tools and yeah what what could we provide online support um, after hours in a chat functionality by one of our customers coming onto the website and being able to do that? Okay. So I think it's, it's looking at how we engage with, with our, our customers and mm-hmm. our shoppers from that point of view um, in, in a B2B approach. And that's why looking at that sort of D2C plus, yeah. if you would. Extended D2C um, or enhanced D2C. I always think that B2B is often... It, it, it's so neglected from a, a CX perspective, mm. but then we forget that the the people placing the orders mm-hmm. through the B two B portal are actually yeah. people, and for them to have a wonderful experience and mm-hmm. for that to be mm-hmm. enjoyable is it would be a great differentiator and also to be easy and help them to do yeah. their job much faster. Absolutely, and I think I think that, you know that, that's why the, the interesting one was I, I talked earlier about that live. Be that live live um, shopping in India. Mm-hmm. Now, these are distributor partners. India is a huge country. We can't get out to everybody. The biggest in the world. <laughs> so, so India India cert- certainly is 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 a great example. You know, we started off thinking that this was um, a test that we were going to do, and oh, yeah. and and then it became a must have, and it became a must have from our customers' point of view because they wanted to interact with somebody about the features and benefits of our products and ask questions does it work here does it work there which they can't they may not get all that information directly from a web page um, and then they can place the order at the same time and we can offer discounts to incentivize that mm-hmm. and it's then transformed into um, also being used as an accelerant for our teams and training our own teams so they can and, and being able to lean into that evolution uh, mm. because it is an evolution it's not necessarily a uh, a change in direction or, or you know that this is an evolution it's a next step it's so important mm. uh dean thank you so much we could speak with you all day long um but i'd like to thank you very much to, um it's been a pleasure to have you um you. speaking with us today and as always it's been an absolute education mm-hmm. uh always a pleasure to talk to you thanks a million thank dean thank you thank you i love talking to dean Every time we catch up with him, we learn something. What are your takeaways from today, Jay? Well, I, I like the Deanisms. I wish I was as good at naming things as, as Dean is. 
Um, I love the idea of the digital IQ um, and how in a business it's nearly inversely proportional to the seniority of the of, of the people in the business. Um, but also at the same time, if you can get across this idea that the technology allows us to uh, or allows the business um, to, you know, harness value and profit from what's in the business. I think people will, will jump on it, you know, very, very quickly. They want to know, you know, how it operates, what's available. And uh, he, he made a great explanation of, you know, the e-commerce amplification effect. Also, Adenism, I, I really, really like. Yeah, I'm totally stealing that one. And I love this idea that we have to think more from the consumer's perspective because everything that the consumer wants is, you know, at the fingertips of desire. And that radical transparency that the consumer is, is exposed to means that as retailers and as service providers to retailers, we need to work a lot harder on building that complete experience. I'm totally stealing all of the deanisms all of the from deanisms. this episode. By the uh, way. We have radical transparency. Radical transparency. Um, I think we definitely need to talk about the three deadly sins mm-hmm. of replication, multiplication, and versioning. Versioning. Yeah. Versioning is the one that always gets me, but I, I think they're absolutely we, we borrowable. See it, we see it so often, and I mean, it, like you know, as soon as soon as you're putting your business online in the digital space. Uh, you have to be prepared for that radical level of transparency because uh, your pricing is there, your your data is there. It can all be scraped. It can be replicated. It's multiplied. It goes throughout the world. All of a sudden, you have this amplification effect again, and everything you get wrong is just amplified, and everything you get right is amplified. Um, and you have to be so careful about making sure you know where it's gone, what the versions of it are. You know, it's quite a bit to it. Because I, I always think of the hand act. I'm going to think of the hand action. Now that when we talk about the fingertips of desire, which is kind of like, <laughs> <laughs> but but the, the the consumer is on the receiving end of that, and because the consumer has so much choice, um, they can switch. And this idea of of loyalty to one particular brand being hard fought for, um, it's hard won and it's hard kept. Yeah, and that's a challenge. So this idea of focusing on fundamentals, making sure the basics work really well so you can build out that complete experience. That was a lot. That was a lot. It was a lot. But it gives me a lot of optimism as well. You know, I mean, as we go into 2023, there's the talks of recession and there's all all of that kind of negative talking, um, people talking about whether or not retailers will be able to cut through in Ireland in a marketplace that is now uh, being entered by uh, far, far larger Bigger um, online merchants, um, online online marketplaces, online marketplaces, challenging. Uh, but I I hope it's I hope it's clear that it's always still within the realms and uh, within within the 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 reach of the retailer to make their distinction to to differentiate themselves based on what what has always been the thing they're good at the retailing the merchandising the connecting with the customer the buying the right stuff for the right person buying it so that they can make a profit you know these are the the uh, the basics and going back to the basics in 2023 and amplifying those. And um, the things that retailers know and do brilliantly, it's making sure that they can execute on that time and time and time again for their customers. I'm excited about 2023. I, I think there's a lot to do. I think you produ- you also produce a little Gordonism as well. Um, uh, the retailer reflexes. I love retailer reflexes. <laughs> and, and, and you see it so often. Uh, you'll see buyers buy a price architecture, they buy a product architecture, and they'll do that to good, better, best. 
they won't even think about it yeah. because they've been doing it for 10, 20, 30, and in some instances, 100 plus years. Mm -hmm. They just buy in that way. And what e-commerce shows is, is that you can use e-commerce to surface that mm -hmm. as long as all of that fundamental base data is yeah. there. And I, I think it should be um, gratifying and maybe give, give retailers confidence a bit because when you overlay the framework of e-commerce on top of that and you're looking for those, those stories, those products have been bought in those tiers, they're always in the business. Um, the, the, the business has purchased correctly. They've bought correctly for their customers for the most part. They understand their customers. So it's something that, that we need to amplify. It's not to be worried about. You know, we need to amplify that and use the tech to amplify that. And great that we're focusing in that area and not necessarily on the latest, shiniest piece of e-commerce technology, of which there is lots and of lot. which yep. it is very fabulous. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it doesn't negate from that need to have that focus on the core. Yeah, the customer experience. I, I, I read an article recently um, you know, through the storm of what's been happening in the last few years, this is very poetic now, Gordon, you're going to love this. <laughs> so through the storm of what's been happening the last number of years, as the mists and the, 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 the fog uh, dissipates, we still have the North Star and it's still in the same place that it always was. So, you know, and I feel that way about the, the, the retail approach, you know, uh, the North Star is still there, it's still in the same place. We just uh, steer the ship. I feel that all we were missing there, Jer, was bit a little bit of smoke, yeah. like just <laughs> for the footage and some some like strings, we need violins, gentle, <laughs> gentle kind of the gentle rousing music and some scenes of Ackle Island. We'll get that. We'll get that. Going. <laughs> Through the storm of what's been happening in the last few years. As the mists and the fog dissipates, we still have the North Star and it's still in the same place that it always was. And I feel that way about the retail approach. You know, the North Star is still there, it's still in the same place. We just steer the ship. Well, I guess all that remains is for me to say thank you very much for listening to the Functional and Fabulous podcast. And we are looking forward to you joining us again in the future where we will have our next victim. I mean, guest. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks, Gordon. You've been listening to Functional and Fabulous with Jerk Johan and Gordon Newman. If you'd like to know more about the podcast or about Studio 49 and Omnichannel Stories, please go to functionalandfabulous.ie. Our sound engineer was Elaine Smith and the show was produced by Roger Overall.